Hey guys, welcome back to Handling It. I'm your host, Catherine, and as you know, I thought I had my life all figured out, and then I realized I actually didn't. But I'm handling it, and one of the best ways I've learned how to do that is to talk with others about how they're handling their own lives. So as you know, we've had so many talented and best-selling authors on the podcast over the past year, but I am thrilled to say that today's guest will be showing us a different side of the literary world. Felicity Blunt is a literary agent at Curtis Brown in London. She joined the world-renowned literary agency in 2005 and over the years has represented countless best-selling and acclaimed authors. In 2014, she even co-wrote the cookbook The Tucci Table, Cooking with Family and Friends, with her husband, Stanley Tucci. So not only will Felicity be discussing her incredible and accomplished career in the publishing industry, but she'll also be sharing her tips for writing and editing a novel and how you should properly submit your work to an agent. I cannot wait for you to hear from Felicity, so you know what to do. Turn up the volume, get comfortable, and I hope you enjoy. Well, Felicity Blunt, you're a literary agent at Curtis Brown in London, and I am so excited to have you on because, you know, as we discussed before, we've had so many different um, incredible and talented authors on the podcast in the past, but with this being a podcast that centers around interviews with various working professionals, I had come across your work, and you are a literary agent, so I'm very interested to hear about your journey into the publishing industry. So if you will um, sort of just introduce how your interest with, I guess, literature came about, because you weren't always, um, you were actually in legal work to begin with, correct? Yeah, I, I start, I mean, everything, I suppose what preceded everything was the love of books. When I was a child, I was obsessed with reading um, and my son's the same. And I just, I loved reading and I was that kid, that sort of classic geeky nerdy kid who would on the weekend go to the library and get out the maximum number of books that you could get out and then sort of totter home with them and read them over the course of the week and then like beg to go back and this was I pasted that you know pre-Netflix pre-Apple you know all these amazing streaming services and maybe that would have interrupted you know my love of books in some way maybe that accessibility uh, would have made it sort of less exciting to go to the library and pick up all these different worlds and take them home with me but you know, we had like four channels and that, like the library to me was just this mecca. It was amazing. You could go in and you could pick up a YA novel. You could sort of venture into the adult library and pick up books that you shouldn't be reading, but you were obsessed with wanting to read. And I, I read everything. I read really widely. Um, I read historical fiction. I read uh, romantic fiction. I read crime thrillers, literary fiction. I read, I remember one of my favorite books I read at quite a young age was I Claudius and that's not to say I was reading sort of massive great huge historical texts all the time but um but it was it was just mind-blowing it was mind-blowing like the level of detail the humor the characterization and it felt it was just it was so lovely for me to have a world that was my own I'm one of four and I do have the ability to read and kind of shut out the world so it was just I'd be in this little vacuum with my novel um, so that was always my life. That always sort of dictated my life. And then I went, I was studying lots of maths and science at A-level, which is sort of the, um, uh, sort of even the last, when you're 17 and 18 here in the UK, you take your A-levels. 
and then I sort of realized that I didn't really want to take maths or science any further and I decided I sort of oh god I've sort of cut off a number of avenues but I'll study law and actually although it's a it's that was my intention to go into the law and practice criminal law I am really grateful that I studied law because as an agent it's definitely something that has bolstered my ability to to agent we negotiate contracts day in day out there are lots of conversations and questions had around terms particularly when something goes awry mm-hmm. uh, and actually even though the sort of the contractual law of being a literary agent is very specific and we have an amazing legal team who invariably I'm go to first for advice oddly the kind of the legal career I suppose gives me some backbone to talk about the the issues when they arise or to negotiate. Um, so it's it's funny, I think, in as in life, as in everything, you know, all experience is valuable. Same as being an author, that difficult second book you can't finish is as valuable as the best-selling first book that you publish because you have to take the opportunity to learn what went wrong, what went right, what mistakes you made. You learn the most, I think, from your mistakes than you do. Like, I think often it's hard to pinpoint what exactly made something a success, but it, you can sort of quite carefully evaluate evaluate the sort of what went wrong um but i i use bits of i suppose my childhood bits of my academic life sort of day in day out and being a literary agent is such a strange alchemy of roles i find mm-hmm. i think every literary agent is quite different um but you're part editor i do a lot of editing on my author's work i like that's my first love to read a manuscript and edit it and work with the author to hopefully improve it and that's a large part of what I do. But then there is the, I don't know, day-to-day counselling, you know, therapeutic care, negotiating between publisher and uh, and client and author, uh, accountant, legal advice. It, it's sort of multifaceted and it is ever-evolving and each client asks something quite different of you. you. I'm a very different agent to one client than I am to the other because they need different things from me. And I think in that way, it's a bit like being a parent. Not that you feel in any way you know, the patriarch of the relationship, but it's just everybody needs something different from the people in their life. In our friendships, we're different, you know, friendship to friendship. And it's just the same. It's such a personal business. And to work with somebody's work that has come solely from them, it's it's like writing a book is a very, very particular art form, rather like, I think, like being a painter. It's different from being an actor or a director. You know, it doesn't have a team of people kind of, bringing something to life it is you and the page and then the first person who reads it is your agent and I just think that you've got to be so sensitive and so collaborative as an agent and actually so honored to be in a position where you might read you know an incredible novelist's work first before anybody else it's it's it is magical there well and you know you had mentioned so you represent um many different fiction clients do you look for do you look for a specific genre when you're representing a client um do you have a variety no no kind of like my childhood reading taste everything really which makes me uh maybe unhelpful to the outside world and that I really will consider most things I suppose in a way it's easy to talk about that what I don't do I don't do um kind of sci-fi it wouldn't be me but I would do fantasy I do YA fantasy I don't tend I do limited amounts of children's fiction uh, I don't do a lot of nonfiction, but on the fiction side, I tend to cover off quite a wide range of genres because I read quite widely. And and I think as an agent, like the, the best and most beautiful things, you don't have to be somebody who specialises in one thing. Mm-hmm. It's it, 
It's just that you read something, you respond to it, and you like it. And I think the key for me is never taking on a client because you think they're going to be big because of a client that came before. Like, I wouldn't think, oh, okay, well, Lucy Foley's, you know, selling amazingly. I need to find a Lucy Foley. I've got to find somebody who is, you won't find somebody. Lucy Foley is Lucy Foley. That's why she's, you know, selling well. Mm -hmm. And actually, the moment you sort of try and deep dive into a genre just for sort of commercial reasons, I think the market moves on. You know, if there's this lag time always at two years between signing a client and selling them, imagine that you're selling them in the moment you sign them and they're actually being published. And I think, um, and I think, as I say, like the best thing about my job is I just get to read really widely and work with a lot of different types of writers and each will help inform my agenting of the others, actually. I learn so much from representing Claire Keegan, who is an Irish literary writer who is extraordinary and exquisite in her prose. And I learned so much from working with Jilly Cooper, who is a commercial brand author who has written sort of very funny, very witty bombbusters, you know, for years and been at the top of the market. Mm-hmm. I mean, they are very far apart. But I think what's really interesting about great writers as well is you see how supportive they are of writers outside of their genre and how appreciative they are of the talent and skill that um, lends itself to a writer who might not be a literary writer, might be a very successful commercial writer. And I think, I think it's, I think I would find it really hard to read the same type of book day in, day out. Oh, definitely. And you know, I love to read and I think you put it best when you were explaining your relationship with reading growing up. Um, You said you were one of four siblings and you were really the reader. And that's very much growing up in my household. That was the dynamic there. Um, I was really the only one that loved to read. And that's okay. Like some people just aren't readers and that's completely fine. But I really loved to read and it was just, you know, my special thing. I loved uh, any genre too, any genre. So as much as I love to read though, I don't know a a bunch about the process of, you know, when a client presents a a novel to you. Um, Mm -hmm. Would you walk us through sort of, I guess, that process specifically, like from beginning to end? So so from somebody who's unrepresented, if they submitted something to me, usually they would submit a partial with a covering letter. And I always extol the virtues of really interrogating your cover letter. It is a bit like a job application at first, I think, sort of being an um, unsolicited uh, query. And I think, though, you know, I read this weekend 100 cover letters because I had 100 submissions that had come in since the end of December, which was sort of terrifying. It was sitting in my inbox like this kind of thing. <laughs> And I went through and it was, you know, on the cover letter, you sort of get a sense of the pace and sort of the the fluidity of somebody's writing. So it's the first way you represent yourself as a writer. So I really don't shortchange yourself by thinking I hate writing cover letters or it's really hard for me to summarise my, you know, my novel. And the ones that do it best, I think, I mean, I have a trick about when somebody's trying to pitch their novel, because I think once you've written a novel that is, say, 80,000, 90,000 words, trying to suddenly pitch it and compress it feels really alien. And I always encourage people to sort of think about what it was that prompted them to write the book in the first place. Like, what was the idea? You did actually start with a pitch. You started with the idea to yourself about, oh, I want to write a book about X. And honestly, I find sometimes that's the best thing to incorporate in your pitch letter about your work, because it's quite... It intrigued and interested you enough to spend months writing it and sort of laboring over the 90,000 words. And you would hope that it would intrigue and interest me. Um, but I'll get a lot of those pitch letters and then we have sample material that is t- attached to them and, and usually a fuller synopsis. Um, and it's like when you're browsing in a bookshop and you go in and you, the only difference being often a cover might attract you. And I don't, we don't have any cover art, but 
you go over to a table when it's not lockdown COVID and you pick up a book and the title intrigues you and you turn it over and you read the synopsis on the back and that excites you and then you crack the spine, you read the first bit. And then if you're really enjoying it, you take it to the till and you buy it. It's analogous to me, like if I the title's intriguing, I'm going to look at that submission before something else because it's just caught my attention. I'm like, what's that about? If the cover letter and the mini pitch are good, then I'm going to want to actually start reading the material. And if the material is good, I'll probably then dive more deeply into a longer synopsis, figure out whether I think this is something for me, and then call in the whole manuscript. Um, and I think if you are a reader and you're writing a book, just think about how you make your decisions and sort of actually apply those to, to an agent's reading. Because we get a lot of submissions. In the same way you go into a library and there are 400 books that you could take out, I can have 400 submissions in my inbox sometimes. And it's just about really making yourself stand out and being really clear about your book and how to sell it. And practice on people, you practice on yourself, just sort of working out in a way, being able to let go of all the detail, but finding the heart of the novel. And I think it's really hard. So I think it's worth not rushing because although you're eager to send the book out, I think you want to send it out looking as sort of jazzy as you possibly can <laughs> make it. And, um, and when I find a book that I love, I tend to work quite uh, exhaustively on the edits if it needs editing. Um, and I will do, I've, I mean, I've worked for 18 months on books before I've sent them out, just dependent on how much is needed. I will only work, obviously, with an author who wants to be worked with. I think you have to be really clear at the outset and set your goals and be really honest as the agent about what you think the book needs. And the client has to be really clear that they agree with them because there must be nothing more distressing than sort of being asked to rework your novel along lines that sort of just sit really uncomfortably with you. So I think setting those those things out at the beginning is really key. But I really, I love the process. It can be draining for both when you've read a book. I've read a book sometimes six times before I've submitted it. And once you've read a novel six times over 18 months, even if it's your favourite novel in the whole world, you do obviously start to lose your objectivity. <laughs> and I tend to sort of recruit my lovely assistant, Rosie, or people in my foreign rights team who would be responsible for selling the international rights. So I would sell the English language rights because I'm an English language primary agent. I have a whole team who will be selling them the French, Spanish, German, Taiwanese, Chinese simplified complex rights once the book is ready to submit. And they can be a really good taste test once you've completely lost perspective. And also thinking about some wider market pieces. Um, and I think, you know, you can you can get tunnel vision on something and it's nice to have somebody read it and sort of remind you of, you know, a couple of fresh ideas. Uh, so that tends to be my process of kind of leading up to a submission. And then when I do the submission, I will tailor the submission to the editors that I think will like it best. And that is another large piece of my job is just staying across the editors, what they're buying, where they've moved to, what list they're running, who's worked with them before, who's found them positive to work with, who, you know, who else in their team at the publishing house, not just the editor, but you know, who's in sales, marketing and publicity, because that is so important to consider now, mm -hmm. particularly now with lockdown. You know, there's a lot of work going on to really push those books on social media, Instagram campaigns, you know, Goodreads, NetGalley. There's this whole kind of operation. You really want to, I think, when you're selling a book, if you're in an auction situation, if you can think beyond the editor, because the editor will curate the text, but then you're going to hand the book over to this wider team who are going to be responsible for publishing it. So that's kind of the, I suppose, the, uh, yeah, cradle to, not start brain, to finish. Cradle right. to <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm curious because, you know, there 
is so much out there in terms of, you know, just literature in general. There's so much to consume. And I'm always just so fascinated by, you know, how many different genres there are and that just content keeps coming. And you sort of touched on it briefly before, but with you getting so many submissions and you are trying to look for something that will sell, right, at the end of the day, um, what would you say is... I don't know, what would be something you would tell authors um, who are really trying to, to write that bestseller? What's something that you look for in a book? A voice, ultimately. And I think, I suppose what I'd say is there's a difference between writing a novel and wanting to write a bestseller. I think write, there are some brilliant novels that do not become bestsellers. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's that's the truth of the numbers game. And of course, we want our books to be bestsellers. But I think, you know, we can see we can see where the figures lie and sometimes things large pandemics aside get in the way of a book finding its kind of correct audience but I think as an author you've always got to be thinking about the story and you've got to think about your characters and you've got to be thinking about all the things that make a world real and I always some of the things that I've realized I think about more and more when I'm reading are sort of all my senses so I think we write visually, like you sort of, you know, you describe somebody, maybe the hair, the eye color, you can see sometimes each character being introduced, hair, eye color, hair, eye color, sometimes weight. And actually, there are so many other things that are probably more interesting to talk about, mm-hmm. you know, when you're thinking and how to set up a character. I don't just need to see the character, I've got to sort of really feel them. And I think about when I'm in a place, particularly like historical novels, I'm always surprised if a historical novel doesn't ever talk about smell, because as far as I understood, the Victorian era was not particularly well scented. <laughs> and I think, you know, that's the way we stimulate memory, you know, taste, mm-hmm. smell, touch. And I think you, you've got to you've got to sort of inhabit your world and not be writing on, you know, the surface level. You've got to sort of be finding the roots of the world. Um, and I really think, you know, working on a line by line level, thinking about making each sentence work for your story, being quite ruthless about what doesn't work. I think there's lots of things you can do that are a favor to yourself, which would be when you've finished your first draft and you really think you can ever look at it again. The truth is you're going to have to look at it a lot. So leave it for a couple of weeks, remove yourself from it, print it out. Don't look at it on a screen when you come back to it, but print it out and read it as if you're reading a book. And immediately you'll be kind of twitching to pick up a pen and start marking things up. And I think, I think, you know, really interrogate your work because the worst thing I could think as an author is if you send a book off with this niggle in the back of your mind that something isn't quite right and you sort of you probably haven't really accomplished or kind of nailed that character or that set piece, and you get that back in a rejection letter going, I really liked it, but you're like, oh, I just why didn't I just push it? Because, you know, there's given the volume of material, getting people to reconsider work again and again is quite difficult. Um, but I think story, story and voice, that's that's what mm-hmm. that's what a novel is. It's a good story and a really, you know, and a well written a well written story of that. Right. And I think that was great. Um, and it goes sort of beyond just writing in general, just I think with any project that you're doing mm-hmm. and that you're devoting so much time to, like take a minute, let it breathe, step away from it. And then once yeah. you go back, you see so many things that, you know, you didn't see before. Um, all those, like, the, the, you something like, my God, all my first characters, my characters all begin with M, their names. So it's like Martin and Maeve and May. And you're like, how have I managed to? And it's weird. You have these ticks <laughs> sometimes. And even that, and I know some authors do that thing where they change all their character names at the end of the first draft because it's sort of 
forces you, it sort of knocks you back when you're reading because suddenly, you know, Jason can suddenly become David and he becomes almost like a different person. You've got to really like make mm-hmm. sure that he feels, you know, fully fleshed out. Um, and I, I know that's one thing that some, some I've heard have, have tried, but I think once you put something on paper and you print it out, it's a very different way of reading because as we read on a computer, I think necessarily we scan because you're scrolling and scanning and scrolling and scanning and it's just the way you can speed read on a computer you can cheat right well my gosh anymore working from home and just I spend so much of my time on my computer I've you know had to get the blue light glasses just even reading and reading you hit a point where like it's just words like you're not even really registering you're not taking it in you're like how much longer is there 100 pages and you sort of start looking at it as a kind of word count rather than a novel or a sort of you know I'm I'm 50 percent in on my Kindle I think that's (laughs) That's probably not the best way to read your work <laughs> right. and edit your work. Definitely. Well, I guess given, you know, the pandemic finds its way into every episode we do, but with this pandemic, has it, in your point of view, has it impacted the industry at all? Because I guess from my perspective as someone who loves to read, but, you know, when pre-COVID-19, when life was normal, it was just hard to find the time once you get in that pattern of working during the week and it, it's just hard to find the time to read. Um, or at least that that's what it was with me. Um, but you know, with the extra time on my hands that this pandemic has given me, I've gone through so much more than I have in the past couple of years. I've read so many different books. It's been wonderful. So I'm curious, has there been, you know, a change in the industry at all? Yeah, yeah, I think there's been, I think there's been a whole spectrum of change and it's really dependent on a personal level on your personal life. So do you have children? Do you not? Are you trying to work from home and homeschool? And, you know, are you a single parent? Because I think in that version of life, you've got less time ever than you have before. And then there is sort of the version of I don't have to commute anymore. I've got an extra two hours and I've got time where I can sort of, I can arrange my day in the way that I want to. And that kind of gives me pockets of time that I might not have had before. Um, And I think there was a thing of, oh, I've always wanted to read that book and I haven't read it yet. And so I think what we saw at the beginning was a sort of a wave of reading or people reading things that they hadn't got around to reading. So it wasn't necessarily something sort of search, people going, I've got so much extra time, I need to buy more books. But but what has sort of continued, I think the book market has been quite robust in you know, in light of the cyclical lockdowns, the difficulty with getting stock sometimes from warehouses, you know, warehouse closures, shipping, mm-hmm. Brexit. I mean, you know, the list goes on <laughs> from our perspective. But I think we've weathered that storm well. I think part of that is down to the machine that is Amazon. I think Amazon, you know, whatever one might think of them, sometimes as a market dominating force, they have actually been heroic in terms of getting, you know, stock out. I think not just a about books we've all relied on them for homeware and, and sometimes food indeed and clothes and and actually you know I really I really credit them there I sort of, if you take Amazon out of the equation I think we might have had quite a different lockdown um right but I think uh, people are still wanting to buy books mm-hmm. you know big books publishers want a book that they feel can really break through noise I had one sort of uh, in the October, September, October time last year um and it was it was really interesting to me to see how universal the love for this author in this book was and it wasn't something I sort of anticipated I mean I I mean I was confident I would sell the book but when you have a book become a global phenomenon you know within publishing it's incredibly exciting Um, and I never go into an auction thinking that's what it what it will be but I think 
I think there was something in the book that actually, because of lockdown, people wanted. There was a sort of positivity. There was um, set in the 1960s is that a female scientist who effectively isn't allowed to practice science because of the sexism that's prevalent in her industry at the time. And she ends up becoming inadvertently the host of a daytime cooking show. And actually through that daytime cooking show, that's where she ends up sort of cooking effectively a science. Anyway, she, she gets to teach the women of America how to cook, but indeed how to be themselves. Um, and I think... I think all of that has some really positive messaging about it. There was lots of, you know, women in publishing responding to lots of bits that felt quite key to their lives at the time. And it just sort of all formed, terraformed around this novel, which was lovely. And I saw that happen quite a lot. Some really big books really kind of popping through. And I think that's really exciting. And I think it means come 2022, 2023, we're going to have some really exciting pieces of dynamic global publishing Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's been immensely hard for authors who are not a brand who published uh, in that April to end of August time. Mm-hmm. I think trying to cut through uh, the noise. I think if you were big, you could have potential to get bigger. But I think if you were struggling and on a struggling sales track, it, it was it was really hard for you uh, to because there was less review attention. We lost pages in newspapers for reviews. I think a lot of books moved out of the first lockdown that we experienced into the, in the UK into later in the year. So we then got this kind of like queue of huge books kind of scheduled one behind, one behind, one behind each other. And you saw some chart positions that were quite strange. Um, and I think the other thing is if you were sort of on a sales track, like uh, the Crawdads book was doing obviously very, very well internationally, mm-hmm. that book just stuck because yeah. I think people who hadn't read it were then like, oh, now I should read it. And mm-hmm. it just sort of just stayed and stayed and stayed. And it kept its kind of shelf space in the in the retailers that were still open. And the last thing I think that we sort of have to consider is the literary market, because we lost and closed um, over lockdown a lot of you know books uh, booksellers like Waterstones and Foils um, and the Independents. Where were those books being bought? They are not bought in supermarkets, which did very, very well selling books. Um, they've got to be discovered on Amazon. You don't have that browsing ability where you go into a bookshop and you think, it's wonderful, I'm going to pick it up. They weren't getting the same literary review coverage. And I think that has been, I think that's really damaging and that's going to be, that's hard. And I, I think we have all as an industry acknowledged that none of that can be held against the author. That you know, is all outside of everybody's control. So it's it's a real, to me, multifaceted picture um, and a bit of a Gordian knot, and it's going to take a little bit of unpicking, I suspect, in the next sort of 12 to 18 months. But sure. we have done well on the whole as an industry. It's not that nobody went out to buy books. Actually, people really did buy books. Mm-hmm. That's really positive. Right. It's been, you know, so amazing. And I, I feel like it's not just been me. Like, so many of my friends were going through the same exact situation where they, they had this extra time and it was really nice um, because I love to read, but yeah. it is, it's hard to find the time to sit down during the day and just, you know, indulge in something like that and give yourself that time. But I think that's been, I guess, one of the blessings, if you will, of the pandemic. Um, and, you know, the the pandemic, the shutdowns, it's, it's still going on. It's far from over, I guess. Mm-hmm. And, um, It'll be interesting to see, I think, with so many different industries, how it affects, how it affects them. Um, and yeah. I'm interested with, you know, publishing and and writers have, you know, I wonder if how many people have been writing during this time. And oh, a lot. Yeah, I bet. Yeah, and that's, br- I mean, that's great. Right. Yeah, that's what you want. Mm-hmm. I think there's all these sort of questions about submission fatigue for agents or editors, but I mean, I'd rather have 
a lot of submissions than none. I mean, I can't really survive if people are submitting to me. So I'm delighted people are writing. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, maybe there are people who are writing a book who never would have set the time aside. I think the one thing COVID has done is sort of there's been a kind of, I suppose, an assessment of self that comes, you know, when there's such a sort of seismic global issue <laughs> in that, do I want to be community to work five days a week? Can I find a way of partly working from home? I think we'll see lots of mixed models of working. And I think there has been just devastation and trauma and and a whole myriad of costs um, of associated with COVID. But I hope one of the positive things that can come out of it is that we recalibrate in some way and mm-hmm. we find more time, you know, for the things like reading. And we aren't always assuming we need eight people in a room to have a meeting when we've proven, you know, over the, I mean, literally, you know, the week of the first week of lockdown, it was like, right, Zoom. And I was like, what's Zoom? <laughs> and now... <laughs> I'm on it every day. Yeah. <laughs> Even my dad can zoom and he's like a technophobe. <laughs> Love that. That's amazing. Yeah. I mean, it's, yeah, we'll see where it goes, but I think it is promising in some ways to see the development that comes out of it. Um, and with that said, have you been working on any projects during the pandemic? I know you've um, done some writing yourself. You co-wrote a cookbook with your husband. Yeah. Um, has anything uh, been going on with writing or has it just been a lot of work? <laughs> I've just, I've mainly been reading and editing. My husband, however, is doing another book. He's writing um, a food memoir, a memoir of his life, you know, through the meals that we've had together and indeed apart. So <laughs> I've, I've sold his book. So he's been at work in, in the office in the garden, um, poor man. Uh, and he's got to deliver it soon. And I had to remind him of his delivery date recently and I thought he was going to faint. Um, but he is, he's making good progress um but yeah having written a book which i mean i, I wrote the book but it was it, it's a cookery book so it's, it's in no way have i sort of come close to writing a novel but i am so deeply appreciative particularly with my cookery writers of the complexity of putting together a cookery book and the moving pieces we're indeed just trying to say something meaningful in a short paragraph about anything and and it's i mean it's not easy you know we all think us editors or agents i'm sure sort of you know oh it's obvious this needs to change but when it is your own work it's quite hard right (laughs) to see the the whole um so yes so shortly i'll be editing my husband's memoir let's hope we you know we make it through uh (laughs) into our next year of marriage um but um uh, but yeah, I haven't done any writing of my own, barring, you know, I suppose helping my son with homeschooling is the closest I've got to sort of any kind of creative sure. writing. <laughs> right. Yeah, I mean, cooking, that's another thing. I've, you know, indulged in some cookbooks myself. Again, with this oh, yeah. extra time, it's nice to actually make yourself a good meal. <laughs> yeah. um, something I feel like a lot of people never allow themselves the time to do, but it's been really, really nice to um, yeah have that extra time and, and cook a nice meal. And yeah, I see your husband, he posts a lot about his cooking. And <laughs> oh, yeah, we're obsessed. I mean, it has got to the point though, you know, sort of whatever day of, you know, uh, lockdown we are now, you think, oh, we have quite a number of children. You feel like you're holding a dinner party for seven people every night and you just think, I actually need everybody to not (laughs) be at the kitchen table each night. Maybe boiled eggs tomorrow. Maybe that would be an appropriate, you know, an an acceptable dinner. Um, But we do love it. And I think it does... I think there's that sense of community that we're all missing. And actually, when you get to sit down with your children and your spouse um, or indeed your flatmates, it's really nice. It's a really nice counterpoint to the flatness of Zoom and 2D life. And mm-hmm. uh, and I will credit my children with being, you know, they are the thing that make me put down my iPhone. And I, so I'm not, 
wholly attached to my email because I think you can dissolve the boundaries between work and home quite quickly when you're working from home yes in not a good way <laughs> yes and I know I, I said parents who are you know doing the whole virtual school with their kids and also working from home I don't know how you do it um I clap and cheer you on from the sidelines I mean, judiciously is the I mean I think I can be honest and confess that there has not been I mean the PE session sessions online I'm sort of looking at my son going I think you're just going to go out and run in the garden if that's okay I'm not sure that I need you in front <laughs> so it feels a bit like he's on a sort of peloton video and I'm just right <laughs> no 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 less screen time not more uh, but I have one I'm homeschooling so anybody's got more than one then I have to say I, I do not know how they do that because it's um totally it's, I mean Hard, just hard. I, know, I, right. I have family who uh, had kids like uh, during the pandemic. My cousin uh, gave birth to, or his wife gave birth to a baby boy, and uh, my other cousin just had a baby girl. And I'm like, I don't even know how you deal with newborns and and working no. from home and uh, other kids. It's amazing. I <laughs> yeah, it's noisy. kudos to that, right? <laughs> For sure, I can't even imagine. <laughs> Now where every, just everybody gets it, you know. There's right. nobody who's going to be like, "Could you please tell your child to stop screaming?" And you're like, "Not really." No, yeah. <laughs> if I could do that, I might have tried it already. I right. think um, I think we all just sort of, you know, Wi-Fi issues, you know, poor connectivity, childcare issues, pandemic problems. It's together, aren't they? <laughs> right. The pandemic problems. It's everybody's going yeah. through it. But yeah, Felicity, this was so amazing to have you on and hear your story. Um, I always like to wrap by asking, with this being handling it, um, has there been a piece of advice or a lesson you've learned throughout your career that's really helped you handle it and helped you handle your life? I think, I think it's it's I think it's an odd balance. It's a balance between always caring because when you don't care you shouldn't be working with that client, but also not letting the moment things go wrong affect you so deeply that they really affect your personal life. Because I think it, I think the strange thing about being an agent is that you're sort of a bit like a duck. You've got to be serene on the surface because your client doesn't want to, you know, see, you want to sort of absorb all of their anxiety, but then underneath the water, your legs are really usually paddling quite furiously to sort of pull the strands together. But I think um, it's just about making sure that, I mean, a client said to me, she just said once, she said, you must never lose sleep over a literary matter for this. <laughs> and at the time I was like, I just really want to make sure this goes right. We've got to look at this. And you could tell that she was like, it's okay. Like, it's going to be okay. I think her point was, I'm not going to die. You're not going to die. Mm-hmm. We're, you know, in the scale of potential disaster, this is manageable. And I think, we all care so deeply about our clients and their success is, is so pleasing and, and so affirming um, that you can lose sight of that. Uh, and I think it's just, as I get older, I think I've learned to not immediately reply to the email with bad news or sort of panic to actually thinking. I mean, just give, your some, give yourself some time to think. It's the best use of your time. And very rarely do we sort of make ourselves sit and think, not on an iPhone, not Googling, not writing an email. For me, it's usually when I'm in the shower because that's the only time I seem to be alone. <laughs> but when you just keep turning the problem over because you want the first response that problem to be the best one, and I think you know running at it because you want to solve it is, as I have learned, is not is not the best uh, approach. So mm-hmm. just kind of 
an exhalation or two is quite a good thing. Right. <laughs> right. I think with, you know, any sort of stress or anxiety, or at least this is for me, um, I tend to blow things way out of proportion and make yeah, problems and some bigger. Right. The world's problem, yeah. You know? And <laughs> in actuality, like it, it's probably not, and you're probably overreacting. So it's good to take, yeah. you know, like we said earlier, take that time to step aside let a situation breathe and give it some space yeah. and then go yeah. back to it. And I think when you're at home and you're alone and I really feel, you know, people are working alone, living alone. I think I can totally see how it's just, you must feel like you're rattling sometimes. And I right. miss that in proximity to colleagues where you could go in and go, oh, this happened. <laughs> and they immediately go, oh, don't worry. Something worse happened to me. Sure. Um, and you learn from each other. And I think that's at a, at a distance, that's harder, but I'm getting, I, <laughs> I'm getting better at it. I can guarantee you something's going to happen this afternoon that will set me back, but I feel like <laughs> I'm getting better at it because I think 2020 taught us that, you know, you've got to, I mean, you've just got to slow and steady. I think we'll eventually ring, you know, with this race, <laughs> just got to sort of be kind to ourselves. Oh, definitely. Definitely. So important. <laughs> Be kind yeah. to ourselves and give ourselves the time we need to relax, I think. Yes. Yeah. Something we should all yeah. really focus on. But yeah, Felicity, this was so great. Thank you so much. Oh, for... it's such a pleasure. I'm so pleased. I'm so pleased and flattered to be honest. So thank you for having me. All right. Well, I hope you all enjoyed hearing from Felicity. Having had so many writers on handling it in the past and hearing their experiences with writing, I was so interested to hear Felicity's perspective from the publishing side. And for all of you writers out there, I hope you found her advice helpful. So thank you to Felicity so much for coming on and thank you listeners so much for tuning in. As always, let me know what you thought of our episode. You can reach us on Instagram at Handling It Podcast and feel free to send us a message and let us hear your thoughts and suggestions. I'll see you next week with a brand new episode, but until then, keep staying safe with everything going on in the world right now and keep handling it. I'll talk to you soon.